Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. A lot of news today. Late last night, the Supreme Court ruled in favor of President Trump's plan to fund a border wall with Defense Department money, $2.5 billion of it. We'll talk more about the stunning decision and the win for Trump later in the show. And in a set of vicious new tweets targeting Congressman Elijah Cummings, the president unleashed a tirade against the city of Baltimore, calling it filthy, disgusting, and rat-infested. That language to describe an American city and its residents has many seeing a dangerous pattern. We'll get to that, too. Now, those stories are just some of the reasons Democrats and even some Republicans want Trump gone. But if the Mueller testimony this week made anything clear, it was that getting rid of Trump will have to wait until November 2020. Here's Congressman Adam Schiff on CNN Thursday. We do need to be realistic, and that is the only way he's leaving office, uh, at least at this point, is by being voted out. I agree. Impeachment has been a pipe dream, a folly, maybe even a waste of time. Here's tonight's headline. Beat Trump at the ballot box. The next chance for Democrats to make that case will be at this week's CNN debates in Detroit on Tuesday and Wednesday. Joe Biden enters the debates leading the polls and promising to stop being polite and start getting real. But behind him, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders are neck and neck jockeying for second. The progressive New England senators are fighting for many of the same voters and have similar messages. And on night one, they will share the same stage. Now, I've likened the Warren-Bernie battle to a murder mystery like Agatha Christie's Ten Little Indians. And then there was one. But for either Warren or Sanders to be the last one standing, they'll have to take each other on. And the longer they both remain in the race, splitting progressive voters, the more likely it is that the last man standing will be Biden. Now, they've been reluctant to go after each other, and it's early. I get that. But it's only a matter of time before they will have to take the gloves off. Could that happen on Tuesday? Here's the deal. You've heard the expression, this town isn't big enough for the both of us. Well, for Sanders and Warren, the town is feeling very cramped. They've made very clear their differences with Joe Biden, whom they've painted as wrong on foreign policy and too moderate. That distinction is clear, and it's an important one for voters to know. But what about with each other? Why should you vote for Warren over Sanders or vice versa? What does she offer that he doesn't? How does he see our country's challenges differently from her? What significant policy differences do they have? The longer that's unclear to voters, the worse they will both fare. In fact, the most important job they should be thinking about on Tuesday night is not debating Trump, but debating each other. Okay, with me now to preview Warren versus Sanders and all the big debate matchups is Democratic strategist Mark Lonabaugh, who is a former senior strategist for the Bernie Sanders 2016 campaign. Okay, so you know, Mark, you know Bernie better than I do, certainly, and you don't see that playing out on Tuesday. You actually think they might, you know, team up. 
Uh, yeah, I mean, I think, the, you know, you, you've got two dynamics in that first night of deba the debate. You've got uh, an ideological uh, debate, uh, and, and you've got a, a generational debate. I mean, don't forget mm. that uh, both Warren and Bernie uh, are the two oldest candidates on the stage. You've got Buttigieg and O'Rourke there, and I think yeah. they're, they're looking, looking to, 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 to drive that, that uh, new generation lane. Um, but, but I actually think what, what's going to happen is you're going to see some of the moderate candidates, whether it's Delaney or Hickenlooper, perhaps Senator Klobuchar, um, are going to are going to try and uh, try and uh, take on either Warren or Bernie, and uh, and I think you could see the two of them actually um, coming to each other's defense. And so I think that the dynamic that everybody wants on that night is is Sanders versus Warren. Uh, I actually think it's going to be Sanders, Warren versus the rest of the field. I just think it's I think it's necessary. And maybe maybe there's an argument to be made that it's not necessary this early, but it's inevitable. It's inevitably going to have to come, you know, to to a head. And, and I remember during the 2016 campaign, you said that the progressive wing of the Democratic Party was dying for a champion. I don't know. Does it help Bernie if they now have two in Bernie and <laughs> Warren? <laughs> Well, I, I actually think what's going to happen, and it's not going to happen for several months, but, but I think as we get mm. into January and February of next year, as Iowa and New Hampshire get closer, I think one of them is going to establish some momentum and some dominance. And what, what's actually going to happen is that the progressive base is going to fall away from one or the other. And, and I think whoever has the momentum at the end is going to is going to is going to put it together. I, I, hmm. I also would say to you, you got to be very careful in these debates and in a multi-candidate primary field um, about attacking other candidates because you know the, the it's, uh, you know you can go attack a candidate and do them damage. But you also end up damaging yourself and driving. Who knows where you drive your support to? And there are a host of progressive candidates in this race. I don't. I don't. I don't think it's unreasonable to think that Kamala Harris couldn't pick up support from from Warren or Bernie. So uh, you know, I, I think they have to be very careful. And if I were in either camp, I, I would. I would be urging them. Uh, I would be telling my candidate not to, not to not to attack. Well, so if they defend each other, as you suggest they might, I, I'm thinking about Joe Biden. Isn't that sort of a dream scenario? Because then he can say. Well, they're both naive. They're both impractical. Neither of them can beat Trump. If he can treat the two of them as one, um, isn't that helpful for him? No, I, I mean, I, I really I really don't. I mean, because I, I think at the end of the day, he's going to have to take on the substance of their ideas. I mean, I think that's the power of both of their candidacies, right, is they have big, bold, progressive ideas that tackle yeah. the central challenges that the country faces. Now, you, you as a conservative may not, may not agree with the, the, those those prescriptions, uh, but you have to say these two candidates are taking on the central challenges uh, on education, on health care, on the economy. And, and I think that's what gives their candidacies power. And, and I, I wouldn't worry about that at all. Well, so you tell me, I mean, you're right, I'm, I'm probably not going to vote for either of them, but right. you tell me, what are the differences? Where are there substantial policy differences between Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren? Well, I don't. I, don't, I, th I think that the policy differences clearly are on the margins. But but I think you know, for Elizabeth Warren, I mean, she has one huge distinction over Bernie Sanders, and that is she's a Democrat, and uh, and I think that matters inside of a Democratic mm. primary. Um, I think you've also seen her, you know, mm. very clearly say, "I'm not a socialist. I'm a capitalist. I want to reform this capitalist system." So I think she has a couple dividing lines with Senator Sanders mm. that, that that are pretty clear, and 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 from my view being a Democrat is, is a pretty powerful message in the primary. Um, you know, Senator mm. Sanders, on the other hand, you know, I, I, I think his, his argument is, look, 
I had the courage to stand up and lead on these issues in 2015 and 16. And mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, you, you know, you have to have courage of of your convictions and leadership to be able to take on a guy like Donald Trump. So I, th I think yeah. you know the distinctions if they go to them um, are, are not really on policy. So do you think Bernie Sanders will run as an independent if Biden gets the nomination? No, I don't. I really don't. I mean, I think he made that decision before uh, the 15-16 campaign, and um, I, I just, there is no way. I, I mean, whatever you think about Bernie Sanders, let me tell you one thing. He sees Donald Trump as a, as a fundamental threat to this country and to its future, and there is no way uh, Bernie Sanders would participate in allowing Donald Trump to be reelected president. So as the primary gets closer and closer to its end, if Elizabeth Warren is, is leading Bernie Sanders by, say, 10 points, do you think he'll drop out? Well, I don't think he'll drop out, but I, I just think some of his support will drop away and she'll, she'll pick up momentum. I mean, uh, look, I mean, if you look at the, 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 where, where the polls sit in I Iowa and New Hampshire today, I mean, mm -hmm. you know, Biden's somewhere in the mid-20s. You have uh, Warren, Sanders, and, and Harris in the teens. Mm -hmm. um, any of those candidates could, could, could rocket past Biden and get up into the, the, 30, the low 30s and, 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 and win, win those two states. And, um, and so I think it's capable, either one are capable of doing it. So earlier this week, I'm sure you saw it, an MSNBC legal analyst said that Bernie made her skin crawl, that he wasn't pro-woman. And he responded yeah. by actually putting that clip in an ad to, to defend himself. Um, there, there is a perception, and maybe it's an unfair one, that, you know, the Bernie bros and maybe even Bernie himself, yeah. you know, he isn't in touch with women. Is that, is that a weakness yeah. for him? I don't think that's a fair characterization, but 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 I will say this, just as a political matter, yeah. uh, Bernie Sanders carries a lot of of damage and baggage from the 2016 campaigns. I, yeah. I think that's unfortunate myself, but but I think it's just fundamentally a reality, and that the skin crawl thing was really inappropriate. But mm. but but that just is a, an example of there there are a whole host of of activists in the Democratic Party who who really are still very bitter at Bernie Sanders. Hmm. Democratic strategist Mark Longabaugh, we have got to have you back to talk about these debates to. and the rest of, okay. you know, what will be a very long primary and, and campaign. Thanks so much for coming on. Okay, you bet. Thanks. Okay, her persistence is part of her mythology, and the slow and steady path has been working for Elizabeth Warren. But does it lead past Trump? I'll discuss. And after a less than spectacular showing in round one, Joe Biden is ready to come out swinging. How does that play out on the debate stage this week? Stick around. Go big or go home, it seems to be the mantra for Senator Elizabeth Warren and her presidential ambitions. It's been an eventful week for her. She's in New Hampshire for two separate events to boost her numbers in that important primary state where she's currently trailing Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders. Also this week, she hit the million donor mark. She's received one million donations to her presidential campaign, making her the only Democratic candidate besides Sanders to reach that milestone. Now she's gearing up for the next debate here on CNN on Tuesday, where she'll get another crack at the field and will undoubtedly lay out her bold, progressive plans for everything. She's run an apologetically progressive campaign so far, in many cases forcing her competitors to meet her on her turf and come to where she is on any given number of issues. 
In the immortal words of L. Woods, it's a completely brilliant plan. Except at the end of this far-left progressive rainbow of a Democratic primary, there's a general election. So can she take her revolution all the way to the finish line? With me now is national correspondent at Bloomberg Businessweek and CNN political analyst Josh Green. Josh, did you, you, you appreciate that L. Woods reference? It was very, very clever, very apt. It's a completely brilliant plan. Um, okay, so you wrote a piece for Bloomberg this week. In it, you write, her, meaning Warren's decision to abandon the constraints and conventions of how a Democrat traditionally runs for president, has revivified a campaign many observers, not just the president, had written off. Suddenly, she's one of the hottest candidates in the field. And look, just a few months ago, she looked to be in pretty deep trouble, Josh. And I admittedly, I called her candidacy DOA, dead on arrival. How did she revive her campaign? Well, I think she did a couple of things. Number one, uh, she's out there pitching big, bold ideas that get liberals excited. Warren's theory of the race is that Democrats lose because they offer timid, tepid plans. Uh, that doesn't work anymore. We saw that in 2016 with Hillary Clinton. So Warren is going to go out there and offer things like a wealth tax and universal child care and Medicare for all. And right. by all evidence, whether you're measuring poll numbers or donors, that's connecting. So you talk about her plan to beat Trump at his own game. But in my mind, in like every way, she seems his polar opposite. So what do you mean by beating him at his own game? Well, what I mean is if you look at what Trump did, he came in and he entirely blew up the Republican Party in the Republican primary by doing things that no Republican had done before, uh, you know, attacking other people and pitching plans that cut against Republican orthodoxy. Uh, Warren is coming in and doing things that Democrats haven't done, pitching huge tax raises on the rich, pitching free college, universal child care, that sort of thing. Yeah. You, didn't, you didn't see plans with these kinds of price tags in the past because Democrats were afraid of being called tax and spend liberals. Mm. Uh, Warren, whether you like her or not, is running completely unafraid. And at least yeah. so far in the Democratic primary, that seems to be working. So she's in New Hampshire now, as I mentioned, mm -hmm. where she's um, still trailing Bernie and Biden. Um, you know, it's Bernie's backyard. You could also, you know, argue it's Sanders' backyard, um, uh, Warren's backyard, too. So mm -hmm. how important is New Hampshire going to be for her? I, I think it's important. I mean, she's really put all her chips in on Iowa. And, and in a sense, the only way that Warren's candidacy is traditional is that she's betting big on Iowa, hoping that leads to a wave of momentum. I think mm. it would be problematic for her if she were to come in, you know, third, fourth or fifth in New Hampshire, because people would wonder, well, gee, these people know you so well. They're so close to Massachusetts. Why didn't they vote for you? Yeah. Uh, but right now, you know, it's very still different early voters, enough. by the exactly. way. Exactly. Yeah. Very different <laughs> voters. You know, and we've got eight months to go before we get to New Hampshire. Sure, sure, sure. Um, and and I, I say that I say that as a New Englander. So I just I know the contours. Likewise. of New, yeah. New Hampshire. Yeah. Massachusetts voters. Very, very different. Um, so let's say she wins the nomination in head to head matchups against Trump. She doesn't fare as well as some of her other competitors. Um, and she'll she'll have a real tough time reaching moderates. How does she plan to beat him in a general having swung so far to the left in the primary? Well, I think if you look to head-to-head matchups, they're either tied or Warren is winning. So, you know, Trump, at least right now, based on the polls, would look to be at a slight disadvantage. I think yeah. the answer, though, is that Warren is running as an economic populist. And if you remember, Trump ran as an economic populist in 2016. Yeah. There's a lot of fear in his camp, though, that he didn't deliver on that. He hasn't delivered for the middle class, for the working yeah. class. His tax cut was, was geared toward the rich. Warren is going to point that out again and again and again and hope 
that that connects with Midwestern voters, with working class voters, with the people Democrats have traditionally won but couldn't attract in 2016. Yeah, Iowa is going to be so, so interesting and important for her, Josh Green. uh, Great piece. Thanks for spending some time with me tonight. Appreciate it. Thank you. Okay, when we come back, I'll talk about Joe Biden's new debate strategy and a little later, the president's strategy to use racism to get him reelected. That has consequences. Words matter. Now he's unrolled his, un- unveiled his, his crime bill for a guy who helped to be an architect of mass incarceration. This is an inadequate uh, solution to what is a raging crisis in our country. If you uh, look at uh, the mayor's record in Newark, his police department was stopping and frisking people, mostly African-American men. We took action against them. The Justice Department took action against them, held the police department accountable. He objected to um, federal interference. Uh, If he wants to go back and talk about records, I'm happy to do that. Senator Cory Booker and former Vice President Joe Biden exchanged fire this week. And so it seems in both instances, no more Mr. Nice Guy. And when it comes to next week's CNN debate, Joe Biden, well, he's ready for a fight. Or as he put it on Wednesday, he's not going to be polite this time. With an enhanced research team to help him get into fighting shape, Biden not only spent this week attacking Cory Booker over his record as Newark mayor, he also took veiled shots at Kamala Harris over her record as AG of California and more directly slammed Medicare for all supporters who won't say how they'll pay for it. Somebody's done his homework. Biden seems to be relishing the chance to take the gloves off and remind people why he's the front runner. So what are his opponents in store for on Wednesday? With me now to discuss and preview our Democratic strategist, Basil Smeichel, and Republican strategist, John Brabender. Basil, Biden is still the front runner. He is very much the front runner. Even that run in with Kamala Harris didn't really damage him. Why change course? Um, because it's not show friends, it's show business. Ah, and, yes. <laughs> and he was, he seems so unprepared, so unready for the last debate. And that's why, even though his numbers did well, his opponents caught up to him. He cannot not allow that to happen again, number one. Number two, you know, there is peril for someone like Cory Booker. He's done a very good job of raising his profile a little bit on an issue that is incredibly important. Right. Uh, but the truth is, you saw the preview of Joe Biden's attack. Yeah. Yeah, you want to come after me for the crime bill. Let's talk about you got your record, a record in too, right? And so the challenge for Biden is having to explain a very long record to people that don't know him yeah. without the context. That's important. But also everybody else that wants to challenge Biden and recreate that Harris moment from the first debate, yeah. they've got to be prepared for his counterattack. Well, we'll see, right? Um, you know, he's previewing it. That's right. We'll we'll see if he can actually deliver on it, John Biden. It's obviously gunning for Cory Booker and, and maybe even Kamala Harris again. Do you think, though, he should be focusing on Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, too? Well, on, on that's that's the problem. Distinguishing being, their economic yeah, message he, from him. He doesn't have that luxury. He's the front runner. And so what did we learn at the last debate? Well, we learned, number one, attacking Trump doesn't separate you from anybody else in the field. Right. So you might as well put that aside. Attacking the front runner, like Kamala Harris did, get you news that night, the next day. And frankly, a lot of people thought she was the winner of that. Mm -hmm. That's going to be the lesson everybody going in here is going to go into. I've got to make news. The best way I can do that is to go against Biden. The other thing people understand, this is not a horse race at this point. Mm. There are multiple races going on right now. Sanders versus uh, Elizabeth Warren Warren on economic populism. Mm -hmm. 
Cory Booker's in a really tough position because Harris went up in the polls last time. Mm -hmm. Booker hasn't moved all that much, but he needs to soon. So Biden does have the luxury of of going after Warren and Sanders because Booker and Kamala are going to come after him. Well, that's right. He's uh-huh. going to take care of it. Plus, at some point, he's going to look defensive and mean. At some point, but and, too late. <laughs> well, but don't forget, too, he got to where he was because a lot of people said, well, he's the one that can beat Trump. Now they're saying, wow. You didn't see that. Yeah, I right. don't see that in this debate. I would also add quickly that Biden doesn't have to go after Harris or Sanders, I mean, uh, uh, Warren or Sanders, because I th- because there are a lot of people that want, it, want him and those that don't want an alternative to him. Yeah. So let Sanders and Warren fight it out for who's going to be the alternative to Joe Biden. He, in, a, in, some res- in some respects, is sort of the standard or bearer, if you mm-hmm. will, of the Democratic Party for the moment in the campaign, in a campaign yeah. context. If there are voters that want something different, let them go find that and decide Mm -hmm. that amongst themselves while Biden just sort of continues to run his strategy. Well, so, Basil, Biden is still very much winning among black primary voters. Um, There's a new Monmouth poll of South Carolina primary voters, and it has Biden at 51 percent among black primary voters there. Mm -hmm. Now, he's been trying to shift away from civil rights because that was sort of a thorny issue for him and and to health care. Is that helping him? What's helping him among African-American voters is that he has a long history with the party. If you think about how he defended himself after the first debate, he said, Obama vetted me. Right. That was incredibly strong. I wish he had done that earlier, you know, just from a strategy, strategic point yeah. of view. But that was a great line. So as long as he sort of attaches himself to Barack Obama, as long as he touches on some of the issues like criminal justice reform and others yeah. that African-Americans are talking about. And the fact is that many African-American voters are fairly moderate. So right. they, there are a lot of older African-American men, for example, that don't like the way the party has leaned into immigration reform because they're saying, look, we've been here a long time, too. <laughs> right, right. Where's the party's attention? on us. So there is, I think, just the mere fact that Joe Biden is a moderate candidate in a field that some will say has moved so far to the left, I think that is also what's helping you among African-American voters. John, um, Trump fired off some new Sleepy Joe tweets yesterday. (laughs) Do you think that's an effective attack on Biden? Well, I think it is of the people that Trump's talking to, which which are blue-collar Reagan Democrats. And I think, you know, look, the one thing about this president is he's not afraid of offending anybody, and he right. offends everybody, right. and Joe Biden's not going to be spared. Mm-hmm. What's interesting to me is I think there is part of him that actually wants to run against Joe Biden. I don't believe mm. his campaign does. I think that they'd rather have somebody who's farther left. Of course. But right. for some reason, I think that, that Trump— Why? Look, he always wanted to run against Hillary, which a lot of people were surprised at, and yeah. I just fe- think he feels that Biden's going to look sluggish mm-hmm. and low energy, like he uh-huh. said, and frankly— Biden uses all these examples where it looks like he got elected right after the Civil War, which is the other <laughs> thing. Which is the other but thing. Remember, he he's, also, he's also uh, attached to Obama, and anything related to Obama, Donald Trump wants to get rid of. So that I think that has a lot to do with it. Well, too. Basil, what will be a good night for Joe on Wednesday? You know, if I think about how voters, and you touched on this, how voters see Joe Biden, they see him as the person with the kind of temperament and mindset and history to go after Donald Trump. In a way, he's has to, he has to have a similar night as Donald Trump had with his 19 or whatever opponents throughout that, that primary. I don't want to say suck out all that 
oxygen in a room, mm -hmm. but he's got to come close to a point where he looks like he's dominating yeah. both in policy and in personality. Mm -hmm. I don't know if he has that in him right now, mm. but he's got a, he's already well, well ahead in a lot of the polls, but he's got to seem much more presidential mm. and authoritative than he has been in the past. Um, it'll be super interesting yeah. couple of nights, and we'll have both of you back to talk about it on the other side. Thanks. Basil John, thanks so much, Great. as always. So adding billions to the debt, blocking national security bills, how is any of this conservative? We'll ask a former, former Republican governor and congressman and potential presidential candidate. And the president fired off another racist tweet this morning. One of CNN's most respected journalists had a very personal response. I'll speak with him next. In the red file tonight, another day, another racist tweet. The president of the United States attacked a sitting member of Congress, this time Maryland Representative and House Oversight Committee Chairman Elijah Cummings. Trump tweeted in part, Cumming District is a disgusting rat and rodent infested mess. If he spent more time in Baltimore, maybe he could help clean up this very dangerous and filthy place. No human being would want to live there. Just minutes ago, the president doubled down, tweeting, Elijah Cummings spends all of his time trying to hurt innocent people through oversight. He does nothing for his very poor, very dangerous, very badly run district. Hashtag Blacks for Trump 2020. He retweeted a video purported to be of West Baltimore. As I told you last week on this show, there is no way around it. It's not gray, it's not ambiguous, and it's not even a dog whistle. Trump is trafficking in overt racism to attack his political opponents. Think that's a stretch? Well, chew on this. He's used the word infested, one that's all too familiar with victims of anti-Semitism and racial bigotry, to describe the following people or places. Congressman John Lewis's Georgia district, Africa, sanctuary cities in California, illegal immigrants, four female congresswomen of color. Notice a pattern? It's abhorrent. Trump supporters may shrug it off as just words or Trump being Trump, but they're not just words. They're hurting people. This was my colleague Victor Blackwell earlier today. The president says about Congressman Cummings district. That no human would want to live there. You know who did, Mr. President? I did. From the day I was brought home from the hospital to the day I left for college. And a lot of people I care about still do. There are challenges, no doubt. But people are proud of their community. I don't want to sound self-righteous, but people get up and go to work there. They care for their families there. They love their children who pledge allegiance to the flag, just like people who live in districts of congressmen who support you, sir. They are Americans, too. I'm honored to be joined by Victor now. Victor, that was so powerful, and it's resonated with so many people. Um, tell me what was going through your mind. Um, when I read the president's tweets this morning, I was I was disappointed, not only because I am, am from the, the seven districts in Maryland, in West Baltimore, Baltimore County, but because the president used this term infested. 
And I remember that he used it back in 2017 about Congressman Lewis because coincidentally, I was living in Congressman Lewis's district here in Georgia at that time. Then I thought back to two weeks ago and I did the search and found what you just shared about the commonality. So initially, I was not going to talk about having lived in the or grew up in, in that, that district when I decided to talk about it on the show. But then I thought it important to offer that context. I am from West Baltimore. There are hundreds of thousands of humans who do live there, Mr. President. So, so that's what the second half of, of what you saw this morning, how it came to fruition. Well, you know, I think it's also important to, per, to, to point out that, you know, as news people, we cover this stuff, we report on it. In my case, I opine on it. But it's also personal for many of us. How personal is it for you when the president of the United States says that about your hometown or tells women of color, American citizens, to go back to where they came from? You know, um, I know many of, of the people who live in, in this district that he said no human would want to live there. They are my family members. I, they were classmates. Um, and, and yes, does, does Baltimore have challenges? Absolutely. Every major city in America does. But when the president speaks about a community with such disdain and disgust, um, I think it's important that we, we speak out about that. And that's what I was attempting to do this morning. Um, you know, the people who live in Baltimore, as I said, love their children as much as anyone else in this country, in any district, Republican district, or a district represented by a Republican in Congress. So when the president of the United States, Maryland is a state, Baltimore is a city in that state, they are Americans too. Right. Well, Congressman Cummings has responded to the president. He tweeted, Mr. President, I go home to my district daily. Each morning I wake up and I go and fight for my neighbors. It is my constitutional duty to conduct oversight of the executive branch, but it is my moral duty to fight for my constituents. Um, Victor, your thoughts on his response? Well, the politics aside there, um, if you change out the committee assignment, mm -hmm. that could have been tweeted by any member of Congress. Yeah. Right. And and every member of Congress tries to do exactly what what Congressman Cummings there there talked about. But as I said this morning, the people in in Maryland 7th, in West Baltimore, in Baltimore County, the children who, who go to Woodmore Elementary and Woodlawn Middle and Milford Mill, all schools I went to, they do the same things that, that the ranking Republican on House Oversight and their communities right. do. And when right. the president speaks about people in this way, he just dismisses them in the name of politics. And let me also say, there are some people in Maryland 7th who support President Trump. Yeah. Right. There are Republicans. There are people who voted for him there as well. So when he dismisses them politically, um, it, it's really disappointing to people who live there and not just people who live there across the country. Well, his words to me are, are just dehumanizing. He's attempting to dehumanize immigrants, dehumanize minorities, dehumanize even American citizens who disagree with him. What effect does that have on communities? When you hear the word infestation, um, from the president, and he is talking about your neighborhood, your right. community. It is deflating, right? It's deflating. Um, the president on, on the night of his election in 2016 said that I will be the president for everyone. Mm -hmm. He repeated that in the inaugural. But we've seen from this president, and he has been transparent about it, that he prioritizes those who support him. Well, all the people in all of the districts are Americans. And, and they're 
I'm sure disappointed by what we've seen on social media, yeah. by what, what this president has tweeted out, not just today, but as he has talked about other communities in, in trying to attack members of Congress. Victor Blackwell, thank you so much for your words earlier this morning and for coming on to discuss this. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. The Supreme Court handed the president a victory last night. It's just one of the topics I'll speak with former Congressman Mark Sanford about next. Remembering Back to the Future 2, when Marty has to hop in the DeLorean and zoom ahead to 2015 to save his future kids? Then he goes back to 1985, only it's not the real 1985, the one he knows. It's a parallel 1985 where Hill Valley is no longer a charming suburb, but a disorienting dystopia. What's this got to do with anything? Well, imagine being a Republican in 1985, Ronald Reagan's America. And then imagine being transported to 2019 and Trump's America. Republicans are suddenly in favor of all kinds of things they once weren't, like tariffs and protectionism, like breaking up families, like ballooning the debt. Our old foes like Russia and North Korea are now our friends. Our friends are now merely ingrates. The de facto leader of the party routinely attacks other Republicans on Twitter. Wait, what's Twitter? Okay, you get the point. 1985 Republican wouldn't recognize 2019 Republican. This week, Congress and the White House reached a two-year, $2.7 trillion budget deal. It cleared the House Thursday night, and it's expected to pass the Republican-controlled Senate next week, with the president tweeting his support. Republicans defend the massive spending bill by pointing to the $738 billion allotted for defense spending next year. Well, some things haven't changed. But the deal also suspends the debt limit through July 2021. Also this week, just hours after Robert Mueller confirmed that Russia and others were still trying to interfere in U.S. elections, Republicans in the Senate twice blocked legislation that would have enhanced election security from these attacks to our national security. Where am I? What year is it? Okay, joining me now, former Republican congressman from South Carolina, South Carolina, Mark Sanford, who is considering a primary run against President Trump. So, Congressman, what has happened to the Republican Party? I don't know. I'm scratching my head. You're scratching yours. Um, I think a lot of people are, are wondering. It was John Boehner who said, uh, I don't know where the Republican Party is these days. I think it's off somewhere sleeping. Um, <laughs> indeed it is, but... Um, if you think about the, the hopes and dreams of a lot of people at a grassroots level, I, I think those people still care about what they've always cared about, even though there seems to be a strong disconnect mm. between those beliefs and ideals and where Washington's coming from these days. Well, that's interesting. So, I mean, if Republicans don't stand for cutting spending and national security, what do we stand for? What are the things that those grassroots voters think we are as Republicans? Well, right now, uh, hypocrites uh, in, in that, uh, you know, Republicans, in fairness, have always one of the cornerstones of what we stood for has been financial realism, uh, prudence on that front. And yeah. that seems to have gone out the door as we're running record levels of deficit and have the largest accumulated debt we've ever had in our country's history. I think we got a real spending problem. Um, and I think that the, the, the debt deal that you just alluded to it really highlights that fact. I mean, it, you know, if if President Obama had signed a deal like that, uh, Republicans would be going of nuts. Of course. And the fact that there has been this eerie silence 
as the president said, it's good to go, says, one, uh, that all things, at least within elected office uh, in Washington, seem to revolve around uh, President Trump, if you're a Republican office holder. Right. And two, the degree to which, indeed, there's been a, a real morphing, at, at least at the elected level, as to what Republicans are about. I mean, I think it's yeah. a real problem. And when I talk to folks here on the coast of South Carolina, many folks say the same. Well, the Supreme Court ruled last night that President Trump can use $2.5 billion um, allotted to the Pentagon to build his wall. Even if you're a proponent of the wall, do you think this is the right way to pay for it? No, I mean, barring from Peter to pay for Paul never works out real well. And again, based on constitutional construct, it's always been the legislative branch that drives the right. train uh, in terms of where money gets spent. So I think it's pr if, you, if you're a conservative, you'd say, look, I, I want a wall. I want to have a secure border. But I don't agree with the idea of funding it this way when you're going out and robbing other accounts, pulling it over, and redirecting yeah. that money, uh, particularly if it's executive branch driven. Again, we'd be going nuts if, if Obama was attempting to do the same kind of thing when redirecting funds that had already been appropriated. You told CNN that you're forming an exploratory committee or you're exploring the idea of primarying President Trump. Would you like to share any news with me tonight? No news. And, and again, I do not have an exploratory committee. What I had said was I would explore over the next 30 days. Okay. Go versus no go on that front. And, and again, one of the drivers for me in that decision is the degree to which we've lost our way as Republicans on debt and yeah. deficits and spending. And I think that we need to have a debate within the Republican Party as to what we stand for, particularly on that front. And I think we need to have a larger national debate on yeah. where we go next on those fronts, because if it's simply more versus more, more wins. Well, I totally agree. And I hope you'll come back and uh, let us know your decision when you've made one. Yes, ma'am. Yes, Congressman Sanford, thanks so much for your time tonight. I appreciate it. We'll be right back. A South Korean six-year-old known as Borum apparently just bought a five-story, $8 million home in the trendy Seoul suburb of Gangnam through a family company set up by her parents. What made the six-year-old so rich? She's a YouTube star with 30 million subscribers. If you have a young child, you've probably seen her or others like her. There's tons. Kids opening and playing with toys on camera. That's it. That's what she does. And for that, she's raking in the dough. Now, this little girl is adorable, but she's also part of a big problem and why I don't let my kid watch these videos. That's because these videos are imparting awful values onto kids. They teach them to want toys and presents and things in abundance. They teach them that their value is in what they have and not who they are. They teach them to overshare their lives with strangers and that anything worth doing is worth doing on camera. The videos are just icky, and I feel bad for Borum. She may grow up to be rich and famous. It's not going to be with the help of my kid. Okay, in case you couldn't tell from the past hour, I'm real ready for this next set of debates. Two big nights, 10 candidates each night. Do not miss the CNN Democratic presidential debates Tuesday and Wednesday night at 8 o'clock, live from Detroit, only on CNN. Up next, CNN Newsroom with Anna Cabrera.
When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.